welcome to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 52. I'm recording on March 29th, 2023. Thank you for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and you can check out his incredible new album, Charlemagne, which is available on Spotify and Bandcamp. And today's intro is from the song Buzzsaw, Party Boy. Are you listening to it now? And our outro is from a song called Chinese Cafe. I have some corrections today. I keep typing not, an O-T, when I mean to type now, and it's causing a lot of confusion. So when I tell you that I'll do that not... I really mean that I'll do that now. I didn't mean to cause any of the feelings you might associate with that first expression. I, uh, I said that in Utah there were more than 42 ecosystems now identified in the Mesozoic rocks, but my guest Dr. Jim Kirkland said, quote, more than 30. So I got that wrong. Don't think that there is 42. I don't know where I made that number up from. And I got an order wrong. And it's eating me up inside. I hate that stuff. The client was forgiving, but like there's this whole conversation I remember having that that must have belonged to an entire other person uh, because somehow I muffed up what they were looking for and uh, did the wrong thing. So, yeah, another mistake. (laughs) We have some dinosaur news. Uh, Here's a new article by Ali Nabavizadeh who will be a guest on the show soon. Uh, His new paper from the Anatomical Record came out in March 2023. It's called How Triceratops Got Its Face, an update on the functional evolution of the Ceratopsian head. This paper is so big and so awesome, I can get much deeper into it than a regular news story, and in that case, I'll let it stand as a singular news article for today, and it may actually continue into the next episode as well. Uh, This paper is basically an entire chapter from a textbook on just the heads of ceratopsians. That is cool. The paper gives a review of a variety of the functional studies that have been performed to investigate the different aspects of the ceratopsian head. Quote, Ceratopsian dinosaurs arguably show some of the most extravagant external cranial morphology across all dinosauria. Ali reviewed more than 100 years worth of studies into the iconic horns and bony frills many ceratopsians portrayed, which came in a, quote, plethora of shapes, sizes, and arrangements across taxa, and their overall feeding apparatus show the development of unique specializations previously unseen in large herbivores. Here are some highlights. Vascular grooves on the horn cores indicate that in life, the cores were surrounded by vascular keratinous sheaths, much like in today's bovids, that would have made the the horns larger and longer than we see in the fossils, and may have even had thermoregulatory functions. So the horns were almost certainly bigger than just what the bones show us, which is really neat. In the story of how Triceratops's large brow horns evolved, there have been some studies which speculate that the more basal cetacosaurids may have used their enlarged laterally projecting jugal cheek horns for flank butting behavior. Over millennia, this may have evolved physically and behaviorally into forward-facing and weaponized brow horns. Some protoceratopsids also show, quote, an incipient nasal horn, which some have speculated may have been used for a direct head-on combat. The very maneuverable atlas axis structures, which help keep the head on a swivel, recall this feature came up in our Spherotholus paper from the new section in episode 51 Control, because Ceratopsians and Pachycephalosaurus share a common ancestor somewhere, and they're all together in a related family called Marginocephalians. 
And the name means, I think, a shelf at the back of your head. And literally, this is the way these animals attach their skulls to their necks. The, the way they do that is distinctive, and they grew these radical skulls as a result. Centrosaurine ceratopsids generally had long brow horns, and this paper says there are two main reasons, potentially. Defense for intraspecific combat or against predators, and display, with comparisons being made with animals like bovids and chameleons to, quote, determine horn use in intraspecific combat. And there's the Chasmosaurine ceratopsians. Generally, they had larger nose horns, and sometimes, like in Pachyrhinosaurus, they had a big mound of bone rather than a horn on its nose called a boss. One paper surveyed likened this structure to those similar to musk oxen, African buffalo, and helmeted hornbills, which all use these structures in high-energy headbutting as well. These ceratopsids had lots of variation in their horn and frill displays. Quote, these ontogenetic differences across taxa are likely due to the different selective pressures pertaining to each taxon, whether they be for combat, display, or other reasons. This paper adds, and this comment is cited as evidenced by six different papers and more than a dozen researchers, quote, although arguments of species recognition and sexual selection have been cited as possible drivers of horn evolution in ceratopsians, more evidence is needed to confirm this. They're saying it could be one of these things, and they, you know, could be one or the other. Now, if they were smacking their heads together in intraspecific combat, it would require some noticeable and significant adaptations for shock absorption. There is evidence of this, but it's problematic. Quote, one such adaptation is the reinforcement of the supraorbital horn cores with buttresses around the orbit and skull roof at their bases, says the paper. Fused syncervical vertebrae may have acted as a buttressing reinforcement for the neck at impact and in carrying such a large head in general. That seems to be the evidence they were looking for, except, quote, some early neoceratopsians without horns or other cranial adornments also possessed syncervicals, putting this proposed evolutionary purpose for this adaptation into question. It seems that some of these adaptations came as byproducts of horn growth and structural integrity rather than any relation to combat. But if ceratopsians were connecting with other ceratopsians in intraspecific battles, another paper says there are three ways that they could have possibly done so. Either one, they flank-butted, perhaps originally developed as basal protoceratopsians. Two, interlocking horns and shoving, predominantly expected in chasmosaurines with their brow horns. Or three, maneuvering and injuring opponents with a nasal horn, believed to be most fitting for centrosaurines. For Triceratops, there are three, quote, horn-locking positions possible given the three-horned structure, and this behavior would, quote, implicate specific potential injuries to the frill, jugal, and brow horns. Some cranial pathologies in the fossil record, including puncture wounds and broken horns, could indicate intraspecific combat, but those pathologies could be from other types of behavior. A very interesting comment in this section is as follows. One squamosal on a triceratops showed signs of healing, inferring that it was a lesion that may have been a result of intraspecific combat. So it's evidently possible that they were using their horns in these ways. Furthermore, and even more interestingly, in 2008, a reported possible healed Tyrannosaurus bite mark on a triceratops specimen was reported. And given the height of a triceratops and the size of a Tyrannosaurus, quote, it is possible that it mainly inflicted fatal soft tissue injuries that would not typically fossilize well and, therefore, would not be found in the skeleton. So can you picture that? In Jurassic Park, Crichton always has the Velociraptors and the Dilophosaurus disemboweling their prey. But in this case, it's the Triceratops disemboweling a Tyrannosaurus. And that's wild. 
And I'll leave that uh, I'll leave that paper there. We'll put a bookmark there and pick it up next week. Uh, there's a lot more to say about the the evolution of the frill and the beak and the snout and the teeth and the cranial musculature. So stay tuned. Triceratops is so cool. All right, with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. You will remember my terrific friends and guests from episode one introduction who were faithful enough to trust me that this wasn't going to be an incredible source of embarrassment for them. And uh, perhaps it has been, I don't know, but guys, I want to welcome back Phil and Lindsay Longprey, the original guests on the show. Thanks for coming back, guys. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us, Ryan. Mm-hmm. So how, how famous... It gets me a lot of street cred with my, uh, with my younger students. Does it? Saying no. that I've been on a podcast about oh. Jurassic Park. <laughs> okay. So has it made you very, very famous? Super famous. Mm -hmm. Because I know to book this, I had to speak to your talent agency. So that was... um... (laughs) And we really appreciate you working with them. Um, (laughs) And we hope you appreciate the time that we were able to squeeze in for you. Talk to my people. My people will call you. So um, I've had a lot of fun with the show, and I'm really glad that uh, you two have been a part of it. And it's uh, it's been you were asking, you know, how has it been going? And the amount of people that I've had to come on, and uh, the different types of people have been just bizarre and, and um, surprising. Like I never thought it would be an opportunity to do all the things that it's been able to do. If you guys were able to make a podcast, what would you guys do a podcast about? Ooh, there's a lot of things. We 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 have a lot of interests. Mm-hmm. Some of our favorite podcasts have to do with food. So I think the opportunity to do a food one where I would have to do research by eating and cooking. <laughs> yeah, that uh, would be good. Would be right up my alley. I'd also happily nerd out about golf equipment, mm-hmm. uh, past and present. I could do a music podcast. Music, art, literature. Mm, the curse of perfect pitch. <laughs> I would not be a guest on that one. <laughs> how, to, how, to, how to hustle at pool? That could be an interesting topic. That could be. Yes. How do how Skills do you... that, Easily degrade. String somebody along till they put the money on the table and then... <laughs> and then realize you're not actually that good and then lose that money. Well, there was a time. There was a time. Well, you got to hit a mark that's good enough that you can get the money, get them confident, but also you can beat them. You don't You don't go for the top dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need like the top dog's cousin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's been neutered a little bit. He lives in a house. Yeah. <laughs> Coming off a bad breakup or something. Yeah. You find the top the... dog's younger brother. <laughs> He's got the cone around his neck. He's... That's the one you want. <laughs> He's got a couple bucks, but it's really hard to see. <laughs> we include him in the family, but. Uh, and another thing. So um, I don't think we, last time we really got to talk about dinosaurs either. Of all well, the I know crazy you things. You kind of filled us in with uh, a few nuggets of knowledge about your favorite dinosaurs that were either mentioned in the that first chapter or um that were coming up that you found some information on that was interesting mm-hmm. uh but why have not come across any dinosaurs since our last podcast oh you might i've been in the book <laughs> where did you have favorite dinosaurs at uh either in the story or in general well i've learned that dinosaurs are sort of like chickens right so they're very closely related to chickens so any chicken-tasting dinosaur would be my favorite one. Mm. Yeah. That's a good question. I'll take the size. I'm going to go classic <laughs> and go T-Rex. <laughs> right on. Boring. I know. What's that one they have in the ROM? That big... Is that a Brachiosaurus? It's like gigantic in the lobby. <sighs> that one, I think, 
I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it because it has like an F and a G in in there, but it came out, and I think I became familiar with the name of the dinosaur. When do you remember Subway had those five dollar foot long commercials, and it sounded like a Hawaiian sort of jingle? Yeah. yeah. And so it's not the foot longosaurus, but it's like it's almost pronounced that way. <laughs> it's the I don't know. There's okay. a G and a K, yeah. but it looks like it's foot longosaurus, and I can't get the Subway commercial out of my head all these years later. Uh, it's something like that. <laughs> That's a good question and a terrible what answer. Longosaurus. What's it called? Uh, but that is pretty cool. But just the sheer size of it is so impressive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Breathtaking. All right. So I was wondering how to get this conversation going, and I've decided to start with this. We'll start here. If you were to recommend some great authors or novels that were really special to you guys, uh, what are some that jump to mind? Hmm, that's a loaded question for an English teacher. It doesn't have to be the best one, just, you know, in the category. I love, I am a huge fan of Toni Morrison. Okay. And I love my, the novel that really sort of is the mark of all greatness for other novels for me is Beloved. By Toni Morrison? By Toni Morrison, yeah. It's so beautiful. And you have to feel, you feel really dumb reading it because someone as smart as Toni Morrison wrote it. And you just have to let it wash over you for a few chapters until you understand what's happening. And then just the beauty of it hits Mm -hmm. you like a ton of bricks and it's amazing. So that's like my, I think my number one of all time. Right on. Yeah. Mine is less beautiful. I would choose It by Stephen King. Okay. (laughs) Only because of when I read it in my life. Uh, I think I was 13 or 14. And I remember reading it while listening to the Simon and Garfunkel Greatest Hits um, album. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of synced up. And it was just a joy to read. I hate scary movies, but I love scary books. Mm -hmm. Uh, and And that one had so many outstanding characters that you wanted to be... You wanted to witness what they were going through uh, and how they got through it together. And I've reread it multiple times. And every time I, I'm still surprised at how much it strikes me uh, and how I feel and how much I just enjoy getting through a thousand pages. Mm-hmm. And you must have Cecilia just going on in your head the whole time. Now. <laughs> it's, yeah, that bridge over troubled water. Yeah. Like it, <laughs> it opened a lot of doors for him. Yeah, it led to a lot of reading. It led to a lot of reading, and that we do appreciate Stephen King for that. Mm -hmm. I'm not the greatest Stephen King fan. I I mean, I really respect him, and I think his stories are really cool. But he changes tense for me right (laughs) when something's about to happen. I'm like, oh, I know what's going to happen now, and it just it it bothers me. He 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 shows his pitches, does he? He tips it. What do they call it? He does. He does, and I just I see it every time. I'm like, oh. Luckily, I'm not smart enough to notice. (laughs) So I can freely enjoy it. What I really liked about King is his uh, his capture of vernacular. He's able to give each character a really really distinct voice. And uh, I remember I read, I don't know if you've read Bram Stoker's Dracula, but there's something in that as well Mm -hmm. where they capture these different, I mean, if you're, they're from like Transylvania or if they're from different areas in England, uh, the vernacular that each of the characters gets is if they're working at the dockyard or they're working in the castle. And King was really, has been really good at that too, that uh, everybody has a good voice. I remember reading, reading uh, Dracula 
thinking, how scary can this be? And it was, <laughs> it was really freaking scary. It kept me up at night a couple times. Is that right? It was, yeah. I don't know. I w- I'm a bit of a sissy when it comes to uh, horror, mm-hmm. but I do like scary books rather than scary movies. Yeah, we are too, we're too scaredy cat to watch scary movies, but mm-hmm. we do like horror in the uh, genre mm-hmm. yeah i think horror, when but, you're reading but... when you're reading something scary you can when it when it's describing it and you're feeling the terror you can almost personalize it with your imagination in a way that a, a movie yeah. almost can't do like movies used to do it by like not showing what it is and so you would imagine what it would be and then that would be a way that you would identify with it and so you could create that meaning for yourself but i think with the book form yeah for sure you um you got to meet it halfway and so if it's going to be terrifying it's going to be personal for you that you, you can make it as scary mm-hmm. as it is that's really, that's neat. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, have you guys ever heard of, it's, there's a book, I had to read it, and I'm glad I did, it's called The Third Policeman. Yes. It's it's like Alice in Wonderland. That one, that one checks a lot of boxes for me. Yeah. That one pushes a lot of buttons buttons for me ryan it was i love i love that book it was like alice in wonderland for the tormented irish (laughs) it's really yeah i don't think so did we read that as part of our english degree together (sighs) it might i know i read it for irish literature yeah i was in irish lit that's what it would have been there for was that with uh dilworth yes okay yes cool i'll go we had classes together i read it it reminds me i need to read that book again i haven't read it in years but that is that is a trip Everybody in, in college has to read a lot, but when you're an English student, you have to read too much, and uh, you can't take too many English classes in one semester or else you will never get anywhere close to the end. And uh, I remember, oh my you, gosh. remember when Carol Davison, Dr. Davidson, gave the entire class the gears for not reading Vanity Fair? <laughs> <laughs> it's 800 pages. It's the middle of a semester. Nobody it's touched like it. This... <laughs> I think I have it. I think I have it on my shelf still unread. She, yeah, unfortunately nobody read it hey. I just, it's so thick it's just so thick she was so disappointed nobody not even one person lied to say okay it was me. vanity nope, affair didn't read it and she, well there will yeah. be a t- question on the exam <laughs> like, okay okay <laughs> she was so yeah, disappointed that was that was a skim job for me i don't even know if i could tell you other than the two words becky sharp Mm. I couldn't tell you about Vanity Something Fair. about green eyes. I think green eyes had some, some sort of meaning. Eyes, something like that. But that I, was, there was a lot of, well, we had to read a lot. Like yeah. we had to read, I would say probably around 10 novels or 10 plays a semester mm-hmm. per course. That yeah. was, it was, it, English degree is no joke. Unless, unless I mean, it's just reading. It could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, now with all the AI and stuff, like I, I'm questioning my, my life because the, the robots can just do it for us. Mm. Well, well they maybe they make good podcasts though. <laughs> yet, well, maybe they will. They'll use somebody's. Fun maybe they will one day. <laughs> yeah, just they just have it produce one for you. Who knows? Maybe that's the easiest way to go. It'd be easier to cancel them when it didn't work out, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> There's not going to be any disappointed uh, artificial intelligence out there. No. Question is life choices. Mm-hmm. So when we think about our favorite books and our favorite authors and uh, and some of the ways that they make us feel, how does that, how would you, I guess, take that perspective and say, all right, what do you think of Crichton, his work as an author? Like, 
what is what do your favorite authors do that maybe he doesn't or what does he do that maybe your favorite authors don't what do you think uh, about that i'll jump in i my favorite thing about Stephen king is mm. the crew the characters that he creates and he makes you care about them mm. yes and he want he wants you to care about them succeeding mm-hmm. i find in general Crichton does the same as far as creating really good characters mm-hmm. that you've seen multiple sides from like their personal life, their professional life, and how they start to interact with each other. But I find he does it in a much more frustrating way because we're kind of like omnipotent. We can see all the things that are going on and you're like, don't do that. <laughs> That's such a bad choice. Don't leave the Jeep. Uh, don't go into that tunnel. <laughs> And so it's frustrating, but you want to like see a resolution because you still care about those characters. And I think that's what really like pulls you forward and what he does well in all of his novels. Like they're all like have a good background laid down early. And then once the action starts going, it tends to be fairly quick paced and and entertaining. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, he creates that, that irony, right? That suspense to drive it forward and keep us reading and, engrossed and mm-hmm. that's cool yeah, yeah. he does uh, he does employ dramatic irony well enough that uh it, sometimes it's foreshadowing other times it's i think in this chat just the chapter before this one it was uh robert muldoon saying believe me all the troubles we've had would be nothing if those raptors ever got out it's like oh, well of course and then i think <laughs> <laughs> and then i literally think uh, no, a little too much yeah a little too on the nose <laughs> And then, of course, this chapter is all about uh, finally when the Raptors get loose, which is, which is interesting. Yeah. So, in, yeah, right, well, in terms yeah. of like developing characters, normally you give a character like a very relatable conflict, something quick and easy that uh, people can identify with, and that gets you on their side, and that uh, that is a good way to do it. But really, we just kind of get like told things. We don't. I mean, in terms of like running from dinosaurs, that's not really a relatable conflict. But uh, we get their backstories, but they don't actually in this book pr- find conflicts that we can relate to in, in so many ways. Like um, I know in the next book, uh, they had to like do some problem solving and things like that. But in this one, they just kind of go through the motions. And I think, um, yeah, in terms of relating with the characters, we can identify with some of them. But I don't know that we we share in their their conflicts as much. Well, and I can think about the kids in the cafeteria and all they want is food because they're yeah. starving because mm-hmm. they're like 24 hours removed from their last. And it's like, here's a candy bar. It's like, no, I want ice cream. And he wants a hamburger. And like, that's probably about as relatable as <laughs> as it gets for us. Uh, <laughs> Back to food. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the chance to like draw dinosaurs out is like you know what i think i'm going to open up this gate and i'm going to use myself as bait Uh, (laughs) like that's a toughie i'm not making that choice (laughs) like where can i hide i suppose you would think that maybe you were smart enough to get back behind the gates is like you just tease them or something i some people are goofy enough to try that sometimes (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i guess they haven't seen the movie so since I saw the movie, I wouldn't make that choice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. Before you, <laughs> you go never know in the moment, though. I mean, who's who's to say? Like we've never been in that situation before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe I would be a hero. Maybe. Who knows? Well, I don't know. Maybe we'd make stupid decisions. Maybe mm-hmm. we wouldn't. But right. well, I think or in the, delicious. I think in the, 
in the film too they do an interesting perspective it's like maybe we can bait them maybe we can get their attention maybe we can do this to distract them and uh and what they don't catch on is that there's being an ambush and i think the film does it very yeah. well with uh, the clever girl bit and uh, and this chapter mm-hmm. does it as well i suppose the adaptation had to be a little bit less kinetic uh, because it's easier to film a dinosaur just sitting there than it is to film them leaping and climbing trees in 1993 <laughs> yeah the thought of a raptor climbing trees to eat me is pretty scary mm-hmm. yeah for, for like all the, the just their physiology doesn't look like they'd be able to climb a tree but it's funny how in in this book there's doors and they keep people out and they don't know what to do and so like behind the waterfall there's this door and grant and the kids can't get through it to one another uh, once they get into the lobby the security cards are back on and they're like oh we can't get through these doors so we're locked in and we're locked out but when it comes to the raptors they seem to get through these doors without any trouble <laughs> it's yeah. just strange just a quick click of the hand is like, yeah. oh, this door happens to work for me now. Oh, that's cool. I'll just jump through the, I'll jump through the balcony or uh, leave the leave a shoe in the door and I'll get through that way or something like that. Yeah, I'll come <laughs> to the skylight. Just leave the doors open for yeah. them. I would say this this chapter in particular is a lot scarier than the movie, even though the movie visually mm. is is fairly frightening. This one adds a lot of suspense in a lot of different spots because this chapter I think has like four different settings mm-hmm. where different people are at and you're getting to see mm-hmm. what's happening around all that's happening yeah. at once and mm-hmm. nobody's in a good spot nobody's like well at least they're safe mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah there's a lot of question marks yeah and, and, above. The, and the clock's ticking down the whole time i think one of the parts that gets me when i read this over again and again the one of the parts there's just an explanation about when henry Wu is lying on the ground and the di- the dinosaurs are tugging at him and eating him while he's still alive and there's um some description about how he's feebly trying to like push them away from his intestines but he's got like obviously trauma and shock and no power le- like i just see like this this instinctual you know mindless response to try and stop them that is completely effortless to do anything about, but it obviously still alive. And they, I don't know if you've seen like the the Walking Dead. <laughs> There's a scene where where one person gets uh, it's very famous. It's a big part of the show that uh, gets catastrophically wounded, and they're still kind of wiggling around. And that's what I see Henry Wu like in his final moments, and it uh, that yeah. gets me like. You're st- there's something about being sentient but st- like mortally wounded that uh, is really really sad. <laughs> Yeah, that's like the ultimate thing that we all have to accept but don't want to. Yeah, there'll always be a moment where it's the end and there's nothing you can do about it, but our human nature still wants us to fight for whatever it is, one more breath, one more minute. Mm -hmm. And also for a greater good, right? Like all they're trying to do is not just save themselves, but they know that there's either a raptor on that boat Mm -hmm. or they want message to get to the mainland that this is not a good place yeah and you cannot come here and that almost <laughs> overrides their own personal safety yeah mm-hmm. I think... he's both proud of the raptors breeding right he's a, proud of his work that he's accomplished mm-hmm. and yet it's his own destruction that's too. right so <laughs> kind of cool so when we talk about a Crichton novel uh, the big th- the theme of hubris always comes up and hubris, uh, the way I've, as I've looked into it, it seems that Crichton employs tragic elements to his story, but he doesn't, in in its in itself, write a tragedy. But um, in this case, yeah, Wu is like, this is great. I did a good thing, man. I'm doing all right, no problem. And uh, he just got to get like, yeah, we're gonna be just fine. Like this is going. So well. And then, uh, yes, he's 
immediately struck by <laughs> his critical pride is, is wounded right away. Uh, and there's right <laughs> after that, Sattler does the exact same thing. Like, don't worry, I got this. I got it all under control. I'm doing fine. Like, get in here. The Raptors are coming. Like, no, 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 no. I got it all. It's all work. And she does the exact same thing. I got everything under control, which is like, what are you doing? You're... And then she has to run for her life. <laughs> but, I don't uh, think they can get through the glass. Well, that was when she had to, she had to run up the tree and then she had to run across the roof and Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she made that choice, right? Like they were just gonna bang on the bars, and she's mm-hmm. like, oh, "I bet you they recognize this sound, of, like <laughs> the, the gate opening." Yeah. <laughs> Muldoon's like, "What are you doing? Don't do that." <laughs> yeah. It's like when you get the cat food and the can opener, and they come running. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Don't be in their way. So, when we're talking about like a good piece of literature, a good book, or something like that, what they've done is they they use their imagination or their creative writing, their good skills and stuff like that to show us something in a new way. They say it in a new way or they present it in a new perspective, but it's something that makes us go, aha, in a way. And, and there's something fascinating about that. And it might be unfair, but like Crichton hasn't won any awards for this book. It was a bestseller and he made a ton of money with it and he inspired you know, all these, all these people to do podcasts about Jurassic Park. But he... Uh... <laughs> But um, in and of itself, he, he resorted to a lot of cliches. He didn't do, put a lot of fascinating stuff into the writing. But one of the things I think he was strong with, and it goes back to the introduction, is uh, he might have been a, a stronger essayist. He, he wrote a very good essay to start the book, to lay the groundwork in terms of the world building and mm-hmm. things like that. And I, I think that there's something to be said that that is one of his strengths, and he put that to good use in this. Uh, and, you know, he's not going to be, you know, a poet laureate. <laughs> but I don't think he was ever trying to be. And... Uh, no, um, no. I think he's trying to bring out just some big ideas and give us good characters and a cool story. Like, I don't think anyone... It's so original, too. Like, this, no one's ever written about dinosaurs like this before. You know, a theme park of dinosaurs that, you know, bringing back a, an extinct species. And it's just really cool the way he, he did that, right? It inspired a generation of people. Mm-hmm. Well, and even just cloning in general kind of taking it to that nth degree of okay if we want to clone something can we do it we can what does that look like on steroids and then that's <laughs> that's this right and it makes for a cool story and yes could a ninth grader have come up with like the plot line sure we go to an island full of dinosaurs they are cool we realize that weekend for some reason they'd like to revolt (laughs) (laughs) timing was impeccable timing was everything Mm -hmm. and now we have to get away so (laughs) it turns out that creating dinosaurs is not a great idea it's cool that's the joy of science fiction though you know like where you exist where the landscape can eat you i think ursula Le Guin said that um that anything can really happen and it's kind of cool to think about it Maybe that's why I'm such a big Trekkie. Is that right? <laughs> well, having, yeah, know. I've been going through uh, Star Trek The Next Generation and the nostalgia. I just let the nostalgia wash over me and mm-hmm. realize it's really very philosophical. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, Maybe only for nerds who like that kind of thing. But I didn't quite get into the Star Trek, but I have no illusions that it's uh, it wasn't good, I think. I don't know a lot of people decided that it sucked. I just, everybody seems to rave about it, yeah? 
It's a tough sell. Let's just say that. I heard some of the movies sucked. <laughs> they had trouble adapting into. Oh, the, the movies. <laughs> the, the, I think the next generation movies are the best. Yeah. But that's just me. That was my. That's yeah. what I grew up with. So. Anything that managed to make it through, thirty cumulative seasons can't be all that bad. Mm-hmm. It clearly had yeah. a had an audience and reached some people in some way. I love science fiction. So, Jurassic Park. It kind of blends that science fiction with thriller and yep, it's it's neat. Mm-hmm. So we kind of touched on this just before the, we started recording, but uh, because you were the first guest, I gave you a first crack at when you wanted to come back or what type, what part of the book you wanted to be a part of uh, to return to the show, and you picked this chapter. And we talked a little bit about it. You said it was it just happened to be the one you were reading at the time, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But uh, you picked a good one. This is really obviously the springboard as it goes. The, ch- the book goes into its end game and, uh, and lets the raptors out. What uh, what about this particular moment in the chapter it made you think, ah, this is going to be a lot of fun? I think the suspense. I think everything that's building where everything seems to go wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we're back at the lodge. We're safe. No, we're not. Um, we had an attack. We managed to save Goldblum. Malcolm, yeah, from the Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, like, he's critically injured, and he's sitting in a room. Is like, we need mm-hmm. to make sure he's safe, and that's where the raptors decide to, like, start chewing on bars. Um, and the kids who have managed to stay alive somehow are making their way back, but they also have this secret that, not a secret, but that the, the raptors are on the boat, and they know this, and they can't let the boat go, and that's their their main driving force. Yeah, and the clock is ticking, and, you know, are they going to make it? So everything's coming down to uh, the next few chapters and kind of like that explanation of how things go and how much everybody relies on the others to for things to go. Like, we have to get power back on. We have to set the fields. We have to be able to turn on the telephone so we can call the ship. And no one has these skills. <laughs> That's like right. no one knows how to turn the computer on and you know like it's just they have to figure it out and yeah. will they figure it out well that's why they kept Wu from going out because yeah. he was the first volunteer to go out to distract the raptors mm. uh, but they wouldn't let him they're like you have to turn stuff on when we actually get power mm-hmm. and the tragedy is that he still manages to get eaten mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that's and right when we're talking about so what do you guys think of, they sit down, they all say, all right, who is the least useful person to go outside and, uh, and bait the dinosaurs? And, uh, and everybody ca- comes to the consensus, it's L.A. Sattler. We don't need a paleobotanist. <laughs> you have no practical skills here. <laughs> what are we going to do with our skills? And so, well, what, is, what does that to mean? Me, to be fair, she insisted. She made that choice. Mm-hmm. They were, everybody else said it before her. She was the last one to say, no, I'm going. So she kind of realized that her skill set wasn't going to help anybody at that particular moment, other than as a tasty morsel. But- well, we often think about this. It's it's part of our, I don't know, regular conversation. If we were on a, a desert <laughs> island somewhere, what skills could we actually bring to the survival of everyone? Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know... A teacher and a musician. I don't think anyone wants to learn about Shakespeare in that moment. Well, that's a future generation on the island. They need that stuff. What could I possibly do? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the importance of just life skills is 
maybe underscored here a little bit. <laughs> is it is it any less less sexist that she volunteers, or that they let her go? Oh no, don't! goes. <laughs> <laughs> like they don't even draw straws. Yeah. Like no, no, you're the one. <laughs> you're the one. You've lived a good life. Yeah. We don't value your skills. So what would you think yeah. if they said, you know what? Let's really look this over. Why don't we? Why don't we hear me out? Roll the guy with like sepsis in his leg out there, and just let him sit outside. <laughs> and we're like maybe we'll yank him in, but let's just let him groan away outside, dying. <laughs> Um, maybe that would be the better bait and that could keep them <laughs> interested. <Yeah. laughs> it seems cruel though. Well, when you're in this situation, I guess that's what would go. They, that's what would probably be me. They'd probably be like, let the teacher with the bad knees out there. Mm. She's, she's going to be excellent bait. Yeah. While everyone who is able body can just run away. Mm-hmm. Or just stay inside. I can't believe they just didn't find another room. Or just stay inside. Yeah. Jeez, maybe we don't should get out. Yourself, don't allow yourself to be bait. That would maybe be the like best course of action. It sounds like there was at least a, a washroom. They could have gone and locked themselves in that or something. I think they were filling a tub <laughs> of well, water at some point. We've already said how good those raptors are. The raptors would the open the door. <laughs> they come up through the pipes, yeah. You, we, you say velociraptor in the mirror three times. To work. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the neat parts that we started off with, uh, Lindsay, you brought up the, the concept of ecological criticism. And, uh, and a lot of things that we do when we're looking at a piece of literature, we, we take a, a structuralist reading or we take a feminist reading or we take a, a Marxist re reading. And uh, there's a lot of different ways to look at this. But the one with how, does, how is the environment portrayed, how is importance to the environment, how is it being used and things like that. And the book starts off with, with uh, some messaging about how changes in in the earth are at risk because of uh, bioengineering and uh and how protecting the environment is is making changes for rules and things like that and so the uh, hammond has and costa rica have to do different have changed how they operate so that they can uh, get things going i think jurassic park is mentioned to have ecological power saving i think the lights dim there's a, like some mention about there's a malfunction in the system but they have uh, an energy conservation system there at the park that uh is a problem the book uh, it starts with a lot of this narrative, beginning with uh, the environment, and then as like things become important in terms of like we gotta like live here, concerns about like the environment are disregarded. Like we don't hear about that part much anymore. But and, and so I wondered if that was like, isn't that the way that like when the environment, you know, the capitalism or healthcare or something like that, bigger issues are more important than the environment, and so we we don't we'll, we'll prioritize that other stuff because there's no advocate for the environment really, right? <laughs> and. Uh, and uh, I wonder if that's part of, like, the ecological review is, does that become a factor as well? Like, oh, we see that this is a, a trend in other books as well, that when, you know, people have this perspective and they this wish, but when it comes down to it, the resources get spent not on conserving nature. It's more important that they, you know, we stimulate the economy or we, we put, you know, better wages for nurses or something like that. And these become greater priorities for civilization than it is for uh, ecology. I wonder if, if you saw more in the book or anything like that or how the environment might have continued to play a role. Did you see anything more in there? I guess, um, like, Crichton's writing a cautionary tale, mm -hmm. too, right? That's part of his that's part of his purpose, I think. I, I mean, his purpose was also to tell a cool story about dinosaurs, but 
I think, um, and you know, even if it wasn't his purpose, it's there, right? So we can talk about it as people who appreciate books. Should we should we be messing with the ecosystems? Should we be going to countries like Costa Rica and you know just mm-hmm. buying up islands and uh, doing experiments on them? And yeah, whether it's true or not, the the impact of rich people on the world, especially white rich people, is a commentary you could talk about. Like even the fact you're taking boats and helicopters to this island and spending all this money to bring tourists there, you know, uh, you're going to open up this great thing like capitalism and ecology. Do they really mix? Is this just a very complex zoo? You know, are zoos ethical or moral? So I think those questions exist. And this is a much better, like a much bigger scope of, you know, should we try to mess with animals in the natural world and their habitats and, or just let them be. And also that mother nature is undefeated. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Nature uh, finds a way. Finds a way. (laughs) And when you make choices that are based on aesthetics and not what should or can actually grow there, that's when you start messing with the the natural order, which like the ecosystem is not a couple things that work together. Like it's millions of from the cellular level to the food chain, that there are ways that things are supposed to go together. Mm-hmm. So even all these dinosaurs, were they all dinosaurs that were even on the same continent? Like I'm, I'm not even sure. I'm not a dinosaur expert. No, I think but... they were they were a mixture of like different ages too. Yeah, because they were stuck with whatever ambered yes. mosquitoes, mosquitoes that they could find, right? <laughs> like you couldn't say no, find me another one. Like you had to take advantage of. We need what a Jurassic mosquito and not a Cretaceous. <laughs> this one's got horrible know. acne. Get another one. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but then also like we are also a part of nature. And we don't like to think of that. We sometimes like to think that we're above or that we're in control of some aspect. But, you know, if you look at my house, it's just some wood and glass and plastic that we've decided, you know, like, no, this is my home. I'm sophisticated and civilized. And um, it's just a slightly more sophisticated habitat than, you know, a cave or, you know, wherever animals live. But it just, it seems like, you know, they they think that locks and steel and and computers and power are going to save them but it it's not mm-hmm. going to mm-hmm. like you can't it's going to be your downfall actually and that hubris factor comes in there too like you can't just assume that our technology is going to mm. save us from our own stupid decisions <laughs> yes they're over reliance on control i think when we talk about hubris, Arnold has another thing. We've got everything under control. Believe me. Jurassic Park is back on it. <laughs> Sounds ne- like something a stupid man would say. <laughs> Next thing, Sorry. he's getting uh, eaten by a velociraptor in the maintenance shed, yeah. Um, I think you make an interesting point that they don't just make decisions based on aesthetics necessarily. They also make choices based on the financing. They have no guns 
to protect themselves against the dinosaurs because they're the Hammond's precious dinosaurs. And you can't get rid of the T-Rex. It's still the, you know, the big draw. Although they had a juvenile. They had another Rex that when they're open in two years is going to be big anyhow. But <laughs> they, uh, they, they're very protective of that. And they were pretty clear. Like, we should have destroyed all the Velociraptors. They should be all gone. We don't need these here. There is no good reason to have them on this island. They're not... They're not there's no good reason. We have other dinosaurs. <laughs> we don't need these ones. These are the worst idea you've ever had. And so they, they've kept them not for the purposes of having a good park or for the benefit of anything other than for getting money. And so that's why the T-Rex is protected. That's why there's no way to defend themselves against loose dinosaurs. That's why... I mean, the raptors have killed before. They're killing today. And... Yeah, and the, instead of... Like, if, if an animal at the zoo does that, I'm pretty sure they destroy it. <laughs> That's um yeah yeah but not here. yeah it just it's Too so valid. it's such a huge liability and that's another question like where are the lawyers <laughs> like Lawyer how lives. how could you possibly <laughs> how could you possibly allow such a place to exist well one of the ideas in, in terms the of the liability of all of it of it all so this chapter has a lot of things too much stuff going on but what it doesn't have is one of Malcolm's uh, tirades on uh, on the way the world ought to be and I think one of the the underpinning comments that if you look at it so he had a whole argument about being thin intelligent and how the Western world is built up in a certain way and that science is penetrative and destructive by design and by preference and this is his argument and that the Western world uh, is the embarrassment of the rest of the world. I don't know what the rest of the world is. I guess the Eastern world does, it laughs at us. But um, the, the idea is that um, it's been erected in a, in a system, and the system has failed. It's no good. And, uh, and he makes environmental messages in that, in terms of when he was asking Ellie, like, when you guys are at a dig site, do you fix the place when you're done digging? And she's like, no, well, there's no money for that. And he goes, well, I'm telling you, you guys like having science like this. And I... I I tear it all back. I don't know that Malcolm was necessarily an environmentalist. I don't know that he was a feminist. I don't think he was like one of those big things. But I think he was anti-Western. I think he was like, this isn't working. He didn't have a solution, but he was like, this is a problem. He, he's a problem finder, not just, a problem solver. He's a big questioner. Like, he's a philosopher, right? Mm -hmm. So just to think to think of the, the questions, there's gone always, there should always be a person that, that you know, is like that, that has that questions and and challenges our decisions or else you know there's no really ch any checks and balances to keep anyone in control or like thinking about what they're doing and like self-reflection is one of the greatest tools for learning that you could possibly have right so even if you don't have the answers to question is valuable in and of itself mm -hmm. right to just think that you know should we be doing this i don't have all the answers but um, I'm going to ask the question and maybe someone can, we can at least maybe start a discussion about it, but I don't think you need to have the answers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, when I was digging into that, see what you think of this. I wonder if this entire system uh, in disregard or let's just say the trajectory that, that Western civilization sort of moved forwards with begins perhaps when we look at uh, the first chapter of the Bible when it says, you know, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And I wonder, had it been interpreted to say, take care of the world, <laughs> take care of all of these things, they're in your stewardship. But instead it says, it's yours, go nuts. And I wonder if 
that uh, blessing to go ahead it becomes the crux of that Western society mm, that uh, that Malcolm is, is well, looking at. Well, it's used to justify all kinds of things, right? Like mm -hmm. it justifies racism and it justifies colonialism and all that, you know, that those first five books of the Bible really uh, give people the the dominion over everything and make all these laws and we're still we're still seeing a lot of the consequences of that way of thinking right and you if you look at other cultures it's not that way you know their their mythology is different and it's it's not we have dominion it's we we must think of others and we must think of generations after us so it's a very closed mindset i think but it's used it's been used throughout history to sort of dominate and subdue and it it is that that air of superiority i think that he's Crichton is taking through in this book and really criticizing. Mm -hmm. And I think that we all agree, most people agree that when Malcolm is saying something, that is actually Crichton speaking through his yeah. one character. I think yeah. there's a strong relationship there. So, And uh, yeah, when we talk about the very beginning of the novel, that introduction again, uh, he's saying, you know, we have to be very careful. Uh, biotech is a crazy power. It has, if it gets loose, if it's uncontrolled, it could change the face of the world. And so there's this message that this is the one thing, like if you let this, if you open this Pandora's box, you don't know what you're gonna get. And uh, and the whole message here is that life is fighting to survive. And I think the, the quote he starts with, that you cannot recall a new form of life, when I looked into what that, uh, where that quote comes from, I think somebody's talking more about like a virus or like a, if, if you were to create a new bacteria, do something in terms of like I don't know, you could create a disease and once it gets out there, disease, a virus, they, that's what they do. They just go and get and, mm -hmm. uh, they, and they struggle to survive as best as everything else does. I don't think he was actually thinking like, oh, if you made a velociraptor that you would suddenly overrun the world with velociraptors, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was actually a risk. But I think that the idea that once something is alive out there, it isn't going to just, you know, give up. And, yeah. Uh, and this chapter you is an excellent. You can't unring that bell. Yeah. But in I, this chapter. I... The analogy yeah. gets there. It's velociraptors fighting for their lives and people fighting for their own. And they, that's I agree, the, the real conflict is which life is going to survive here. And and yeah. uh, the control is out of anyone's hands. There's none of that left. <laughs> I well, I think it's cool thinking of, of Malcolm as Crichton's voice because mm -hmm. as entertaining as he is, he has almost zero impact on the story. Like nothing changes because of him. Mm -hmm. Everything that happened would have happened anyway, whether he was there or not. And he's kind of like that second voice that reminds us is like, ah, mm -hmm. I want to reconsider this mm -hmm. and kind of like that cautionary tale. But also we needed that voice before, like things of like Lindsay said, you can't unring the bell. Things are already so far now that it doesn't matter. You make a great point. He He's obviously only there for the purposes of narrative, like and put him there mm. so that that side of the argument, his side of the argument, was going to be voiced. And he was mm -hmm. so important to that novel that when he does the sequel, he that's the only character he can still use. He still needs to have his voice. So, like, Malcolm was essential to to this story making any sense. Otherwise, it's just people. But, yeah, why is he there? Just to say, I told you so? Like, nothing is going to come of it. <laughs> he said, don't do it. I don't like it. It's going to fail. And they bring him out. I guess if they could win him over, then they, I guess they've won it over. I suppose he was there at the bequest of the lawyer. Gennaro recruited him. 
So he was there, but he was happy to say, I don't want, I don't think you guys should do it. But yeah, he doesn't do anything. Here's the other thing that he, so the other thing. Well, there also has to be this, there has to be a naysayer, right? Mm -hmm. There just has to be. You can't have, you can't throw all these people and, and who love dinosaurs and who think that there's nothing wrong with it all together in a room and, and not have someone there to, to question. Mm Mm-hmm. But Malcolm is a very indoors character, <laughs> and it, it, I yeah, think it's fun that yeah. uh, the other problem with Malcolm as is as many intellectuals are. Yeah, <laughs> they're indoor cats. They uh, so Malcolm knows about the Velociraptors on the boat. This is the one great flaw in all of this is that he is in the Land Cruisers when so after Ellie and uh, Gennaro ride back with Harding after seeing the Six Stegosaurus. Left in the Land Cruisers, going back on the tour, is Regis, um, Lex and Tim, Grant, and Malcolm. And so the five of them are still in these two Land Cruisers. And they see, as they're leaving, oh, raptors are on the boat. We should do something about that. And then the Land Cruisers are attacked by the Tyrannosaur. And everybody goes their different ways. Regis gets eaten to pieces. Uh, <coughs> Lex, Grant, and Tim escape into the park. Malcolm is recovered. And then Malcolm tells this tale of... Um, dinosaurs is you know escaping enclosures he recounts all the things that happened to him he's talking about all of these details but he and he's talking about what to do like hey these dinosaurs can't escape the island but he forgets that he saw the raptors on the boat and then this they had phones and stuff they could i don't know this is the one flaw is that uh he knew the, the this information was talking about this information but didn't share this information that was interesting so like what's he doing there yeah <laughs> you're not helping the story malcolm <laughs> Yeah, because that's what everybody else is doing. Like, that's Grant's main focus as he's trying to come back is Mm -hmm. all he wants to do is get that notice to the boat that they can't leave. Um, And that becomes his big personal goal other than, like, protecting the children. But even then, he's more than happy to just leave them and be like, I'm going to go take care of something. They're eating ice cream. Mm -hmm. No worries. Yeah, as we we're kind of running out of time here, but some of the some of the best moments that were in the book, some of the best most memorable moments from the film, all kind of are born out of this this one chapter here. Um, and we'd be remiss not to, to touch on them. Um, when you think back of the kitchen scene, uh, obviously in the film they put in two rafters, but in the book it's all with the night vision goggles, and so even little Lex can't see what's going on at all. That's just so uh, so absurd. Um, turning on the power in the maintenance shed they have no lights and stuff like that he has to feel his way down through the the corridor although mm-hmm. he finds a van down there or a truck that's a little odd how did they get a truck into the second sub basement of the <laughs> <laughs> yeah they've got a lot of stuff hidden everywhere like kind of tucked away uh that they're able to just draw upon because it's their story mm-hmm. um it's not necessarily the best use of their funds but trying to show that they were doing their best to be prepared for whatever could happen. And it just goes to show that in that chaos, even that wasn't enough. Like they had smart people that were trying to foresee what could be done, which included putting bars over windows Mm. because there should never be a Raptor on top of the building. But luckily those bars were still there, but they, (laughs) even they were not enough. And I think that's what this chapter is about, is that it was not enough. Your intelligence wasn't enough to save you, at least most of you. Plus, it's scary. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of thrilling, right? Uh, We don't know. I don't know. He sort of leaves it so that um, 
you know, he, he, you get a little bit of what the kids are doing and a little bit of what Grant's doing, a little bit of what Sattler's doing. And um, it just builds that suspense. It's exciting. And I remember the, the movie, like this scene in the movie was really scary. Yeah. Like where they, they can see her reflection in the, uh, in one of the cupboards, the stainless steel cupboards in the kitchen. And you think she's going to get it. This is the time. And then she's able to put that door down and he mm-hmm. crashes into the door. We realize it was a reflection. Like that's pretty cool. Yeah. I guess up and down doors, Raptors can't get those. <laughs> Every just, other they one. They just smash them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What else? I remember the rooftop being very clearly uh, something special as, uh, as Ellie's, I don't know if she's given up on life or she's like, oh, I'll just give it one last whirl here, see how it goes. <laughs> there's there's some strange inner monologues that are in this chapter where there's one where Ellie's on top of the roof and she's she's like, isn't this always the way? She's saying something like that and she's like shrugging. She's like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like I could see somebody who's, you know, about to die or, or facing facing their mortality thinking something strange like that, like why me or something like that. Well, no, we all die. I mean, you can't be like, why me? But like she she has this odd like, situation like it's just bizarre that you would like have this comment about that particular situation being chased by raptors on a roof that um <laughs> would be loaded like i can't there's, there's still so much paleobotany to discover yeah. so there's an odd one there and then more to give and then uh when Wu is talking with grant over the radios as he's trying to get the power back on grant like bangs his head and he's like really he's rude with Wu over the radio like hey what happened over there i hit my head stupid and they're like, what? <laughs> and I don't know quite. There's just some weird dialogue, and and uh, I guess people are tired and getting cranky and stressed out. But <laughs> well, that's some... probably what he's trying to show you, right? Is that it's not a standalone scene. It's a buildup of everything that's yeah. happened so far, from elation at this new world that's been created mm-hmm. to some basic concerns to, like they said when they were trying to help the Stegosaurus realizing that it's not perfect. How not perfect is it? And now you're off the tour. Nobody's where they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. The dinosaurs aren't where they're supposed to be. And in the course of this, nobody gets a nap. Nobody gets a meal. Nobody, like, I didn't say anybody stopped to go pee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, not that that's something you'd write into the story, but even just that normalcy that this has been a day. This yeah. has been like a 24 hours of constant fear factor terribleness. Yeah, it was uh I I think one of the things that impressed me the most going through a lot of this, especially looking at it much more closely, was how how much agency and uh and heroism there was in the the lawyer, in the Donald Gennaro character in in that um he was really trying to save Malcolm's life as best as he could. People were reluctant to like do certain things, like in terms of like turning off the power, getting it back on. He's like, "Listen, more important than any of your concerns is this guy not dying. That is important." And I don't think it was just because of liabilities. I don't think he has investors in mind. I think he really cared. Like, this is life is more precious than all of this. Quit being idiots. Plus, mm-hmm. he was like, "Plus, yep. you're not saving the park. The park is closing. <laughs> this isn't." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna give us a big red. Yeah, we decided that, this a while ago. No, what yeah. kind of what kind of a consultant goes? No, you can go ahead after after this week. <laughs> like, we we really promise this won't happen again. <laughs> yeah. 
Now we know what's going to go wrong. We fixed it on a bad day. (laughs) We'll put on two bars on each window. It'll be you'll see. You'll see. It'll be better this time. All right then. Well, um, was there a last part or anything else that you were like, boy? While we're here, we got to talk about this part. Was there something last final words of uh, Uh, of living in the world? Whoever is listening and is upset that they I didn't know the name of that dinosaur in the Royal Ontario Museum. Mm -hmm. It is the enormous skeleton of the Titanosaur. Footlongosaurus. Mm-hmm. So you were very close with the subway footlongosaurus. It's five dollars, yeah. <laughs> yeah, five dollars. Yeah, no, just looking forward to the next chapter, right? Like this is the springboard to an end. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. This is uh, them tallying up, and then they got to go after they get everything back in order. I don't know. Did they destroy all the raptors? I can't remember how they die. Uh, I guess they do. Well, bad on me. I can't remember what happens to all the raptors now. Nonetheless, they Does go into the, the rex eat them all. They go into yes, that's what happens. That's right. And then they get a yeah. <laughs> they don't endorse. Did the I die, Lord of the Fly style, and set fire <laughs> to the island? Well, I think Grant poisons them with eggs, and I think uh, one of them or two of them get fried on the electric yeah. bars, or something like that. There's still a lot of raptors around. <laughs> but then Plus they, on the boat. And then they get into that uh, that final the final couple chapters after everything's back in order. That's when Hammond dies. All, all sorts of good stuff still. A lot of there's a, a bountiful mm-hmm. fifty pages remain after these <laughs> these big moments. True. Yeah, there's the the epilogue is huge. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that's not directly in the story that they still need to tie up and tell you about, and also lead into a sequel. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they. Which is important. Do you feel like when you read this that a sequel was an inevitable, or do you think it was like to me when I see this, I see a guy like Crichton had written Andromeda Strain, done done a bunch of like middling little things, but he wasn't super famous, and I think that this book, probably it's how do I put this, he became a giant star after this yeah. one, and but before this, I don't think that that was a thing, and uh, I don't know if he was ready for that. I don't know if like he wrote this thinking that it was going to be read by this many people. I, I like. Uh, Sometimes when you know that more eyes are going to be on it, you, you maybe do some things differently, right? You maybe be a little bit more fair about certain things. But when you're just ripping it together as like a, you know, for a crowd of like, I don't know, uh, yeah, teenage boys. I like, wonder how quickly somebody told him this was a great idea. Mm. Like if his publisher, if his publishing company were like, when he sent over like a preview, if they're like, this is a movie and like we're instantly on the horn with, with uh, production companies mm. because I don't think it was too long after the release of the book that we had the movie, mm-hmm. like as far as like actually making it, like, I don't think it was concurrent, but I think it was a, a pretty quick jump from this is an incredible story and we have to make this mm-hmm. a movie. It's an interesting but story. I think... As I understand it, he, he was writing it or, you know, pro- producing it or coming up with the idea for years. And then, um, huh. and it took him a long time to move on from like one subject to one idea and finally get to, to where it was what he wanted to do, get the right point of view character and get it the right, the, the right sentence. And then before he had finished the manuscript, he was developing, the story goes, he was the developing screen. ER with, um, Spielberg and Spielberg. Oh, yeah. And he, I were... just looked up the, uh, the screenplay was by David Cope. Mm-hmm. However you pronounce it. Yeah. Yeah. So he However would've... you pronounce it. So he K-O-E-P-P. So he would have taken uh, Crichton's first draft and and uh, fixed it up. 
that's pretty cool. But I think that Spielberg, when he was developing ER with Michael Crichton at that point, before the book had even been published, said, oh, yeah, I'll make that movie. That sounds good. So he was yeah, ready to for go. Sure. I think it was something where they saw how popular it was and those kind of loose ends at the end made it pretty easy to say, hey, do you think you could squeeze another book out? And he was <laughs> like, yeah, I can do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd love a house in Miami as well. <laughs> how do you say no, too? I mean, that's like people are Plan waiting line. with bated breath for your next book. I mean, this is just such a hit mm-hmm. that you just write it. I think you just do it. Mm-hmm. And I think he actually did a good job with it. Like, I enjoyed The Lost World sure. yeah. as a novel. Again, these aren't like great masterpieces of, of literature, but they're entertaining reads. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think he had great characters and was able to carry a few of them forward and the concept forward. And all right, what's the next problem? How do we, how do we fix this? Mm-hmm. It's a. Have you read Misery? Yes. There's a whole bit about. I forget exactly how the, how it goes out, but the, the main character is an author, and he would always play this game like, can you? And the idea was, like, um, you put yourself into a terrible situation. How do you write yourself out of it? And this was an exercise that he liked to play when he was a kid that uh, served him well when he became an author. And then it served him well, like, how is he going to get out of this uh, this crazy lady's house? <laughs> and uh, but that's the whole idea. Uh, I'm sure authors do it all the time. How do you put, put yourself in a box and then get out of the box all the time? And uh, mm-hmm. I can imagine Craig being quite excited to say, all right, how do I... How do I get a, another book out of after nuking this island and killing Malcolm? How do I put Malcolm on a new island with dinosaurs <laughs> in the sequel? <laughs> so it's the same idea. Can you? Oh, I can do that. Yes, <laughs> yes I can. <laughs> Michael Crichton, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Yeah, well, thanks I so- wonder what his like net worth is. Oh yeah. Michael Crichton. Yeah, you- that would be a good question. We could only we could only hope to achieve such fame. It's true. And fortune. <laughs> yeah, we haven't seen any royalty checks yet for the podcast, Ryan. Is that? Yeah, mm. we'll just keep waiting. We're for just that. waiting. Well, you're spending all your money on the talent agency. <laughs> That's our problem. Your, your agent's I got too much you. of a cut. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like a nice bloke, but my goodness, yeah. Every time. Well, thanks so much for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, good seeing you guys again. Yeah, we love talking to you, Ryan. Yeah. Next next time you go to yeah, the ROM, next time you go to the ROM, let me know. $400 million when he died. $400 million? Yeah. $400 yeah. mil. Pretty successful. Yeah, he did all right. No complaints. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So Thanks, next, Roman. Next time you go see the <laughs> Futgalongosaurus in uh, in the ROM, let me know, and we'll uh, we'll meet yeah. you. Yeah. You got it. Yeah, for sure. Out. Okay. A terrific big thank you to Phil and Lindsay for coming back. Thank you so much, guys. Great catching up, and I'll see you guys one of these days soon enough. Our text this week begins with the sixth with the introduction to the sixth iteration. It says systems recovery may prove impossible, as quoted by Malcolm, and um, I'll extrapolate upon that in. In part three of this episode, uh, Return Part 3, check that out when it becomes available in a couple weeks. This week's text is Return, and that spans from pages 317 to 344. It's a big one. In a synopsis, this chapter is huge, and so please allow me to address this in portions as we scheme to make this a multi-episode chapter. 
And indeed, it's as consequential and meaningful as the tour was way back when we had to divide that chapter up into three parts. In this first part, Grant drives back to the visitor center via the underground tunnel on page 317, stashes the kids in the cafeteria at the visitor center, and then heads out to restore power at the generator shed. Meanwhile, Muldoon and Sattler conceive a plot to distract the raptors, ensuring Grant is free to move around. But the raptors prove to be far more cunning than they could have imagined. Characters. Dr. Alan Grant. Grant's driving through the dark tunnel back to the visitor center on 317. Grant's taking the raptor with him to, quote, prove to the people back at the center that the dinosaurs are really breeding, suggesting that Grant still feels like Arnold and Wu may think that they've got the things under control at the park, whereas we know otherwise. Things have fallen apart, and nobody's got anything under control. But Grant doesn't know that. He's hoping for a hero's welcome, a hot shower, and a feast when he returns. This young male raptor is all the evidence necessary to prove that the raptors are breeding in Jurassic Park. Grant is disturbed by the scene in the dilapidated visitor center and takes the dead guard's radio and tries all the channels on 318. He stops Lex from peering at the guard's corpse too closely. He connects with the others over the radio and tells them he's back and that he's all right. He tells Ellie that he has the kids and that they're safe on 319. Grant asks for Muldoon, presumably because Muldoon's status and locality means they would have some plan for defense against the raptors. It's bad news to hear that, quote, we've lost some people upon asking about Muldoon. But Grant stays on mission asking if the phones work. They've got to warn the boat about the stowaways. And this next step is to get the phones on as soon as possible. Muldoon warns that the raptors are attacking the lodge and they may be in immediate danger, but Grant shrugs it off, having seen the plans and reinforcements made to the lodge, and suggests they quit their bellyaching that building is designed to be impregnable. But upon learning that his quest to turn the power back on has changed its parameters, 11 a.m. is no longer fast enough. He demands to know how much time he's got. Grant doesn't have a half of an hour. He's got 15 minutes to save these people from the raptors, not necessarily save the world from raptors on the boat. Some of those minutes are wasted while Wu and the team concoct their plan to guide Grant to returning power to the park and secretly distracting the raptors with Sattler. When being given directions to the maintenance shed, Grant is momentarily puzzled by the passage of time. He can't believe that their visit to the maintenance shed on the tour was only yesterday. It seems like years ago, we're told on page 322. When he leaves the visitor center, he finds the path among the palm trees through the mist on page 325 heading north, and the shed emerges through the fog. He works his way around the shed looking for an entrance, finding the door propped open by a shoe. Once inside, he radios the team. That's it for this part. Lex Murphy. Lex is carrying a flashlight and worrying about the tranquilized velociraptor in the cage on page 317. Lex dreams of all the food she'll eat now that they're back. Remember? She's hungry. Uh, she and Tim huddle by the Grant's metal desk in the front lobby of the visitor center where she can only see the guard's dead legs and feet but can't stop staring at them. She's fascinated with the body and has lots of questions like why the blood doesn't appear really red. She keeps squirming around trying to investigate the corpse on page 319 to Grant's disapproval and she mentions that she's hungry again on 321. Remember? She's been hungry. She's been hungry since page 153. It reminded us like seven times at this point. She... Talk about a one-dimensional character. Even Slimer from Ghostbusters has more depth. And all he was was hungry, too. And in the sequel, at least he got to drive a bus. That was cool. All right, Tim Murphy. Tim is concerned about making it back in time to warn the ship on page 317. And when they suddenly exit the tunnel back into daylight, Tim is wowed. Tim also huddles with Lex at the guard's metal desk in the front lobby of the visitor center on 318. And as Lex stares at the corpse, Tim calls her morbid. When the radio goes quiet, Tim gets worried 
when it takes several minutes to hear back from the team on 321. And when they come back with a plan, Grant leaves Lex and Tim in the cafeteria while he's off restarting the generator on page 322. Tim uses the night vision goggles to see in the cafeteria, which apparently is very dark. Tim offers his really hungry sister some chocolate bars, but she refuses. She's dead set on ice cream now. Tim keeps these candy bars in his pocket. I wonder if Hammond ate all the ice cream. Wouldn't that have been fun? We can't have any. Hammond took it. There are a lot of... Let me put a pin in this. I'll write this down. There are some interesting connections between Hammond and Lex, and I think they they really come together in this uh, back half of the book. A guard. We're not introduced to a body of a guard lying on the floor. It's just got a sort of like the desk. It's just there. And Grant picks up the radio from the guard and tries all the channels. Lex stares at the guard's body, though can only see his legs and feet. And this might be the guard that everyone was waving to during the tour, back on page like 176 or something like that. Uh, on page 201, we're told that uh, the guard who saw Nedry leave in a jeep was named Jimmy. So the guard down in the lobby could be Jimmy. This could be Jimmy's ear. I am Jimmy's ear. I am Jimmy's cold sweat. I am Jimmy's complete lack of surprise. I am Chuck Palahniuk? All right, Ellie Saller. Upon hearing Grant's voice over the radio, she's elated, asking if he's all right on page 318. She asks about the kids on page 319. She warns Grant that the raptors are loose and may be in the visitor center too, and Sattler reports that they are staying in the lodge. And she reports too that all the phones are dead, that nothing works. When it comes to volunteering for someone to be the decoy and lure the raptors into one place, Sattler deduces that she's the only non-essential candidate and laces up her sneakers nice and tight before strolling out into the courtyard. Her only instruction... Don't tell Grant. It'll make him nervous. And she's probably right about that. Sattler feels the chilly mist on her face and legs on 323. She's scared. Her heart is thumping. Though, feels like the fences and bars are keeping her safe. Sattler sarcastically reacts to Muldoon's methods of attraction, calling him very amusing. So we can tell that she's also nervous by this. She gets fed up with Muldoon. He's visibly drunk, and she hasn't any time to waste with this guy. Any expertise he's had, she no longer has faith in him. When she begins enacting her plan to attract the raptors, Muldoon warns her against it without the launcher, to which she responds, then go get the launcher, on page 324. She opens the gate, which this will be like when I open the cupboard and the cat thinks it's time for wet food, right? Sattler believes the raptors will become alert that their dinner is becoming available. It's a good plan, but they're defenseless except for the gate. They must be careful. And she exits through the gate. In only a few steps, she's lost sight of the fence through the mist. Her heart is pounding so hard she can't feel her feet. When Muldoon tries ordering her around, she'll take none of it. And don't call me girl, she shouts back at him on page 324. In the mist beyond the fence, she's tense, listening, watching at all sides for the raptors. Her muscles ache from the tension, her eyes strain to see. And when the attack comes, she has the agility of a running back and escapes towards the fence with Muldoon yanking her bodily off her feet to get her back behind the fence as soon as possible on page 325. She achieved what she set out to do. It's come at a cost, though. Blood runs down her leg from the scrapes and bruises of dodging the raptor's attacks. Dr. Henry Wu. Dr. Wu is astonished to find that not only did Grant find a radio to call in, but that he has already made it back to the visitor center and isn't out in the park somewhere on page 319. Wu wonders how Grant could help get the electricity back on. Wu's on board with Malcolm's plan to distract the raptors. Not only does it get the two off the roof and buy them some time, but it also attracts the other four that are kicking around the visitor center and posing a greater threat to Grant and the kids. 
If they could attract them all, Grant would be free to return power to the island on 321. Wu doesn't know if it'll work, but he's an optimist, I guess. And at least he's going to die trying instead of die lying there, waiting for the raptors to get in. Wu delivers the plan to Grant, explaining how he'll get the power back on over the radio. Wu instructs Grant to turn the radio off while he's sneaking over to the maintenance shed so it doesn't make any noise on 322. Wu looks through the window at the three raptors being distracted by Sadler and feels like they, quote, no longer seem to be seriously trying to get her. Now that they almost seem to be playing on 325, Wu observes that the raptors are not really trying because they realize they can't reach her behind the fence on 326. They might, they might have figured out that the raptors were up to no good, but they're interrupted by Grant's radio call. Wu speaks to Grant formally as Dr. Grant, which Grant dismisses as a formality that their urgent situation can do without. Robert Muldoon. Grant asks for Muldoon's whereabouts upon learning about the raptor attacks, but Ellie says, quote, we've lost some people in response, suggesting that Muldoon isn't available to help on 319. When Grant goes on to explain why they need the phone lines to warn the boat, Muldoon interrupts. He's alive! <laughs> Muldoon explains, as well, the raptors are chewing their way through the bars into the lodge and will breach their defenses within a half hour. He reports they may only have 15 minutes before the lodge is breached on page 320. Muldoon doesn't believe there's time for Grant to restore power and prevent the raptors from getting them. He's got a heck of a limp after spraining his ankle earlier, and he's getting mouthy and outspoken. Remember, he's already downed a bottle of whiskey at this point. He just doesn't believe their distract-the-raptors plan buys them enough time. Plus, his ankle is too injured for him to be a good decoy, and he doesn't like the idea of Sattler doing it. She'd have raptors all around her. Raptors on the roof. He has a hobble and goes to help Sattler attract the raptors from the roof on page 323. He's resorting to a grim sense of humor, perhaps as a, a defense mechanism to combat his own fears. When Sattler thinks to open the gate and really put herself out there, he advises against it and thinks he should get the launcher, but recalls the shells are with Gennaro, perhaps never to be seen again on page 324. Muldoon hates Sattler's plan, bellowing, God damn it, girl, don't do that! But she's done listening to him. He's already he's ready to continue arguing with her, but she's moved on, literally, into the mist. When she comes sprinting back to the fence, he pulls her bodily off of her feet, back behind the fence, and commends her on a job well done, and then he goes on to taunt and tease the raptors trying to maintain their attention. As Wu looks out the window from Malcolm's room, he speaks with Muldoon, so Muldoon has returned to the room and left Sattler outside alone by page 326. Dr. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm thinks the raptors are ugly on page 320. He's far too weak to speak, but he can still think just fine and gives Wu and Muldoon the key to their survival. They can use themselves as bait to distract the raptors, delaying their mission to chew through the steel bars, and thus give Grant some time to return power to the island. That was Malcolm's idea. Donald Gennaro. He has the shells for the launcher. Too bad he forgot the radio when he left for the maintenance shed on page 324. And the Velociraptors. This uh, starts off with a young male raptor, and it's all the evidence necessary to prove that the raptors are breeding in Jurassic Park on page 317. It's having trouble breathing after being tranquilized, and it's just in the back of the car. When they arrive at the visitor center garage, they put the animal in a cage with a dish of water on page 318. And the raptors are loose and said to be able to open doors on page 319. That's the rest of the raptors. Two raptors are up on the roof of the lodge, according to Muldoon, and they're chewing through the bars in the skylights. They have a bite pressure of 15,000 pounds per square inch. They snort and snarl on page 320. Upon arriving at the lodge gate, the first raptor appears, quote, incurious at Muldoon's banging <laughs> on page 323. They're said to be as intelligent as chimps with excellent hearing on 324. They attack silently. There is no sound. They almost make it to the top of the 12-foot fences by jumping on page 325, and they eventually begin playing with Sattler at the fence, distracting her until the roof raptors can come cause trouble on page 326. That's how smart they are. Quote, their behavior had taken on the distinct quality of display rather than serious attack 
like birds on 326. Now, Wu would have figured it out if he hadn't been distracted. All right, localities. There's a dark underground tunnel. It's featureless except for the occasional air vent above, shaded to protect against rainfall and permitting little light to enter on page 317. This reads like they're not deep underground, but close to... Close to the surface, like a storm drain might be connected directly to the surface via, like, a grate. But they're deep enough that Grant isn't, quote, sure, but he sensed the tunnel was gently tilting upward, leading them back to the surface, on page 317. The depth conveyed during the waterfall scene suggested it was very deep. Like, if the door were 20 feet up and the falls were 50 feet down, then they'd have been around 30 feet underground. The tunnel would be about 10 feet from floor to ceiling, so they're deep in the earth. But they're... Almost certainly very close to the surface in this last dash, because he suddenly pops out into the daylight on page 318, and was written to have totally not expected it, so he's very close to the surface, but cannot tell with any great accuracy. Uh, there are crusty white animal droppings in many places. Obviously, lots of animals have been in here. The visitor center, the dark tunnel exits in front of the garage at the visitor center, where there is a light mist blowing, partially obscuring the building on 318. Grant parks in the garage. In the garage, there are stacks of animal cages. They exit the garage via the same stairs Nedry and Muldoon use, which lead usually past a guard to the visitor center lobby, the ground floor entrance of the visitor center. The visitor center looks different today than it did when Grant arrived yesterday. The glass doors are shattered and a cold gray mist blows through the cavernous main hall on 318. The sign which reads, When dinosaurs ruled, the earth dangles from a hinge creaking in the wind, and the robotic tyrannosaurus has been upended with its legs in the air, tubing and metal innards exposed. Outside the visitor center are rows of palm trees, shadowy shapes in the fog on 318. It's also quiet, and a chilly fog drifts through the lobby on 321. Beside the visitor center is a path, straight through the palm trees to the maintenance building. The raptors can't break through the glass. I guess they aren't by the shattered glass doors at this point, but they are able to jump to the second floor balconies on page 340 and enter the visitor center. So I guess the glass up there was open. <laughs> All right. The Lodge. Sattler reveals they are holed up in the Lodge on page 319, where it's presumably most safe from the Velociraptors. This should have been the best place to hide. Totally impregnable, but the raptors got up on the roof, which nobody expected, and so they were in fact not safe here as the raptors chew through the steel bars and the skylights. Inside the Lodge, beneath the skylights of Malcolm's bed on page 320, uh, broken glass falls from the skylight directly into Malcolm's bed, as well as foamy saliva. Like, change rooms or slide the bed three feet to the left or something, guys. Uh, the front of the lodge is obscured by chilly mist on page 322, and the fence and big heavy bars keep Sattler safe. But the mist is too thick, it's impossible to see beyond. The gardens and trees surrounding the lodge are barely visible. Beyond the fence, Sattler finds that the fog is so thick, she loses sight of the fence frighteningly fast on page 324. Wu looks up at the skylights where the raptors peer down at them, and Wu is able to look out the window at the raptors teasing Ellie. Um, so there must be a window in their room as well. And it has a gravel rooftop, and there's a door on the roof, where we're told on page 336. The second floor of the visitor center, a glass-walled corridor, runs the length of the building on page 338, we're told. Down the hall, there are doors labeled Park Warden, Guest Services, General Manager, Comptroller, and then a restricted area requiring a security card. Control. We get our best description of this room yet. Quote, in the center of the room was a console with four chairs and four computer monitors. The room was entirely dark except for the monitors, which all showed a series of colored rectangles on page 339. Also, there's another severed ear here, too. Quinterinus, a video of the ship almost reaching the shore. The ship with all the raptors on it can be seen, and Tim can recognize it from flying over the day before. So when they flew over, they could see the ship. It appears to be just minutes from landing. Stylistic techniques, like italics. My god, they're here. We're here as italicized. 
On page 319, says, Woo, who's surprised? Not that Grant has found a radio, but that he's made it back to the visitor center to call for help. Oh, don't, that'll do it. You'll have to make noise, says Muldoon, in italics as well. Semicolons, quote, he scrambled up to face a vertical rolling door of corrugated steel. Semicolon. It was locked. On page 324. Here the semicolon leads up to the door and reveals a detail about that door. Two conjoined independent clauses, but the same subject. So, semicolon used correctly. Rhetorical questions. Biting through the bars? On page 319 says Grant, as the statement challenges his understanding of velociraptors, their bite force apparently is beyond what he'd ever considered. Biting through steel. It's not that Grant doesn't believe it, it's he just letting that statement challenge his beliefs as he comes to terms with the gravity of their situation. The raptors can open doors and bite through bars. There is nowhere they can hide on this island. Ellipses. Quote, I'd guess we've gotten another 10, 15 minutes before they break through completely and come through the skylight into the building. And once they're in, ellipsis. On page 320. This ellipsis leaves the dreadful, undeniable horrors of the raptors getting at them with all of their 15,000 pounds of bite force per square inch unsaid. But we meet that ellipsis halfway. We know what it means when the raptors get in, and so we're co-creating the dread Crichton is mustering for us. It's brilliantly done. What he says and what he leaves unsaid. Quote, if Grant could somehow get into the maintenance shed, ellipsis, on page 320, says Wu, obviously with a plan that's only half-baked, or one he only half-believes in. Thus the ellipsis leaves much of this incomplete thought incompletely uttered. Then, Malcolm breathlessly gives Wu and Muldoon the key to their survival, but ellipses are used to show that he's too weak to speak, thus only words at a time are audible through the strains of what remaining energy he still has. Things like, go to, ellipsis, the fence, ellipsis, stick, ellipsis, your hands through, and he grins weakly. So there we are, the the pauses, uh, the ellipses represent a pause. Maybe even get them away from that skylight, ellipsis. It might work, worth a try. On 321 says Wu. The ellipsis is perhaps him waiting to hear any rebuttals from the peanut gallery, and hearing none, they go for it. Quote, you'd have the raptors all over you. Raptors on the roof, ellipsis. On page 321 says Muldoon. I'm not quite sure what ellipsis is here for other than it's not a complete sentence, I guess, and he's just trailing off. Recall, he's down a bottle of whiskey this morning already. He might, you know, just be trailing off here. Quote, they don't understand English, but I imagine they get the general idea, ellipsis, on page 323, where the general idea that they're offering themselves up as dinner is being left unsaid by the ellipsis. M dashes, quote, he wasn't sure, but he sensed the tunnel was gently tilting upward, leading them back to the surface and M dash. On page 317 and 18, here the M-dash interrupts Grant's thoughts as they burst into daylight with shocking speed. And this is good for pacing, and it's exciting. And there are a couple sentences here where there's a static hiss from the from the radio that interrupts what's being said. Uh, so, like, I get the static, but are people just not holding down the button? Like, why is there this much static whenever they speak over the radio? But, you know, that's page 319, like, where are you? And... M-dash must have planted a tree too close to the fence, and there's, like hyenas, they can bite through steel and M-dash. Grant, are you... M-dash. Re-Wu speaking. Are you there? So, yeah, the radio's, the radio's cut in and out. Exclamations! Quote, they have arrived in front of the garage! Exclamation mark on 318 shows some surprise and relief, lots of emotions for Grant in his observation, and he's relieved to finally put this adventure behind them. They're finally safe at home. Quote, yay, exclamation. We did it, exclamation. Yay, exclamation, adds Lex, with three more exclamation marks on page 318. Quote, I'm going to go get a hamburger, exclamation mark, and french fries, exclamation mark. Chocolate milkshake. It's not even a sentence, it's just a word. <laughs> no more dinosaurs, exclamation. Yay, exclamation. 
I cringe just reading all of that. <laughs> um, sarcasm. Upon hearing that the Raptors are loose, they can open doors, and they might be in the visitor center, Grant responds, Great. On page 319. Just like the rest of us. For the tone deaf out there, he is being sarcastic. He doesn't really think that this is great news. Sattler calls Muldoon's sense of humor, quote, very funny. Though she doesn't appear to genuinely think that, offering herself up as bait is actually funny. So that's, again, another instance of sarcasm. And now that the stakes are higher, uh, people's, their, their characters are showing the tension in, in certain different ways. Uh, literary techniques. We have typos. I'm a jerk. <laughs> and I point these things out. Uh, in my edition, the earliest printing of the novel that I think is available in 1990, anyhow, um, on page 321, there's a typo where the quotation bracket isn't facing the correct way. At the end of the quotation, there should be a closing double quotation mark, but it's an opening double quotation mark at the worth a try moment. So let me know if you've got a new and improved copy or an old original that's filled with typos like mine. This goes along with the typo on page 35, where Morris opened his briefcase, rummaged through his papers, and glanced back at Ellie, who was, was lifting bones with tweezers from the acid bath on page 35. Both of these typos are fixed in my latest edition of the novel, but they were still in the earliest edition. Common expressions, quote, Grant drove his foot to the floor on page 317, is a way of saying indirectly that he's depressed the gas pedal to its limit, suggesting he's giving the engine as much gas as he can, although I think it's an electric cart, <laughs> to go as fast as he can. Common stuff, uh, but I'm being thorough here, of course. Extended conceits. Muldoon employs sort of an ongoing joke that they're serving themselves up as dinner for the Velociraptors on page 322. He says, come and get it. Here's our first customer. Dinner is served. And Sattler doesn't like that joke. And then one raptor literally enters the cafeteria in kitchen while Tim and Lex are cooking for, looking for something to eat. So the soup's on, I guess. They're being offered up for dinner. So there's an interesting conceit that continues. Similes. Quote, they're like hyenas. They can bite through steel and... On page 319. Says Muldoon describing the bite of a velociraptor. This is more of a comparison than it is in... It, then it is imagery, so it's not a simile, and uh, maybe we shouldn't grade it as one. Dramatic irony. This is sort of a cliffhanger or work of dramatic irony all working together. Quote, they came to the lobby, and they opened the door, and they fell silent. On page 318, followed by a paragraph break. We know that the visitor center has been abandoned, and the velociraptors have attacked, killing folks, etc. We know that the visitor center is not safe, but Grant and the kids think that they're finally safe after they've had their own harrowing and horrifying adventure through the park. As they discover that things are not what they expected, it comes as a great shock, and Crichton does an excellent job illustrating that mood swing, their hopes being dashed, even if we get seven exclamation marks and a list of food items from Lex to make it so. Cliffhangers. Crichton uses the cliffhanger again on page 320, as he leads us readers into a pressure-filled moment with a short fuse, where the raptors are about to breach the lodge securities. And Muldoon says, and once they're in, ellipsis, the ellipsis leaving the dreadful part unsaid, ah, uh, just a minute. Dr. Grant, and then the radio clicks off. Wait, what? It compels you to continue reading. You can't put the book down now. Crichton has expertly employed tension and timing and, and this cliffhanger so well. You just got to know what's going to happen next. All right, uh, in our discussion section here, we have uh, more details on the timeline. Grant's wristwatch reads 10.15 a.m. on page 317, so we know he's running short on time to report about the raptors on the boat. Um, there's some comments here we should make. In terms of observations on um, on a feminist reading of the text, when drawing straws to see who will sacrifice themselves to be the live bait to attract the raptors, it's like Chicken Little looking for someone to help her make the bread. Everybody's got an excuse. Muldoon's ankle is shot. He'd be no good. Woo's, well, he's far too important. 
being the only guy who can start out the computers again, right? Harding is the doctor. He's needed to keep Malcolm alive. And Sattler is like, hey, I study extinct plants. I'm too, uh, I'm, uh, I guess I'm the live bait, eh? <laughs> so let this be a lesson. If you find yourself in the room where you're the least important person, get out of there before they throw you to the raptors. I'm kind of joking about all this. Ellie volunteers and hell, she's physically capable, presumably very agile and is still young enough. She could probably, you know, doesn't have to do much stretching before physical activity. So she's a good fit. But geez, Crichton, as the author, has relegated his only female character in this entire half of the novel to self-identify as being the least important person and volunteering their body to save mankind. The author can try and make this an exciting, empowering moment for our heroine, but that's not how this comes together. She's the least technically proficient person in the group, relegating her to the only disposable person. And Sattler feels the chilly mist on her face and legs. On page 322, we didn't hear how the mist felt on anybody else's legs, just Ellie's legs, and those shorts that turn lawyers into tagalongs. But Crichton tries to write Sattler's sacrifice as heroic bravery, and a moment for her to demonstrate her feminine independence. She realizes Muldoon is drunk, and she's through with listening to his orders. And when he tries ordering her around, she yells back, you don't call me girl, on page 324. So she's tuned him out. So I guess there's a message of independence there, but it's it's not a great message. <laughs> The Lodge. Okay, so hear me out. The raptors are on the roof, about to chew through some bars and enter into the Safari Lodge. And the bed Malcolm is in is directly below the skylight the raptors are biting through. Could could they move to another room? It's possible they can't because moving Malcolm might be, like, too risky due to his injury. But, like, but I'd risk moving him into another room that the raptors haven't almost chewed through all the bars. And there must be... A couple more rooms, right? Sattler and Malcolm and Grant each would have had their own rooms. And they can surely lock the doors, right? You could still put a few barriers between the raptors and you for a little longer. Perhaps a bathroom. It feels like they just had more options than just sitting there waiting as saliva and glass dropped onto them. Contrivances in plot. The visitor center looks different today than it did when Grant arrived yesterday. The glass doors are shattered and a cold gray mist blows through the cavernous main hall on 318, we're told. The sign which reads, When dinosaurs ruled the earth dangles from a hinge, creaking in the wind, and the robotic Tyrannosaurus has been upended with its legs in the air, tubing and metal innards exposed. Yesterday, there were also wires and cables all over the floor because the place was still unfinished. On page 88, we were told. So, are we to believe that the raptors broke into the visitor center, climbed up into the ceiling, and unhinged the banner, which reads, When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, and then toppled and gutted the robotic Tyrannosaurus? Is, is that what we're being told happened? Because we weren't told all that damage happened yesterday during the storm. That would have come up. So here's what I think maybe could be more likely. The room is only two stories high. The robotic Tyrannosaur was toppled. And as it fell over, perhaps it caught on the banner, ripping it from one of the hinges. That still requires us to believe that the raptors, who are smart as chimpanzees, are problem-solving man-killers, and the most ferocious hunters ever, saw an unscented robotic Tyrannosaurus and turned it upside down. So, I don't know. Believe what you will about that. But that, that bugs me in a way. Park management. Muldoon coughed. Apparently not. He says about the lodge being completely secure against dinosaur attacks on 319. The cough is telling. He's clearing his throat so that it may not squeak, betraying his lack of confidence and, and leadership. In other words, he's saying something that and doesn't want to sound guilty as he says it. Hence, clearing his throat. For all the belly aching that Muldoon does in this novel about things not being done his way, and now they're not safe... He's got a lot of responsibility to take. He's the park designer, the park warden, the one in charge, and he's responsible for making sure that jobs are done correctly, whether by 
oversight, training, staffing, or just performance reviews. It's up to him to make sure that the correct ceramic covers are used by the fences so they don't short out. It's up to him to make sure that their reinforcements are secure. So when he clears his throat and admits, quote, must have planted a tree too close to the fence, <laughs> that this is on him. While someone made the mistake, it's his lack of oversight that allows these mistakes to become consequential. He was to oversee the operations, but he overlooked how the operations were performed. Muldoon's character, the guy in charge of safety and park design and all of that, takes a big turn overnight. During the tour and during the rescue efforts, when they find Malcolm and Regis, he's very conscientious about the risks and dangers in the park. He's very vocal about what safety measures he wishes they had, what actions were important for the zoo to meet his standards. And when things aren't done correctly, the radios weren't charged when they needed them. The ceramic buckles weren't used on the electric fences, for example. He groans that nobody listens to him, and perhaps this is true. But if it's your job to ensure people are creating a safe environment, and people aren't doing that, your job requires you to discipline and oversee and perhaps add policies, etc. So despite him being a very good hunter, his role as an administrator is obviously lacking. And then, as we enter into morning... He's out in the park firing tranquilizers at the Tyrannosaur and doing repairs to the fence. He's just chugging back whiskey straight out of the bottle. Like in the park's darkest hour, he should be leading them. They should be looking to him for answers, but instead he's devolved into a reckless cowboy-esque vigilante. The hero we had in the first half of the book isn't who we've got now. And I like the first Muldoon. I guess I like the second Muldoon too in a very... Bruce Willis in Die Hard sort of way, but in terms of what he should be doing in terms of his role and responsibilities at Jurassic Park, he is a big part of the failure too. And that brings us to management. We also get another list of job titles via offices on the second floor of the visitor center. There's the park warden, there are guest services, there's a general manager, the comptroller, and then restricted access on 338. And beyond the restricted area is the park supervisor, operations, and main control. And just one more note about the, the, the visitor section in the northern half of the island, the fenced-in safe area that has the raptor pen, so the raptors are locked into the visitor center in the north. As we were told at the beginning uh, in, in, episode, in, in episode 24, Control, when they were first on the tour, when they went to go visit the visitor, the raptor pen, they left the visitor center, passed the maintenance shed, they passed an animal enclosure with all the goats in it, and then they made it to the Velociraptor holding pen. And all of those things are, I guess, in, in a straight line north of the visitor center. And the maintenance shed in that chapter was called the power plant, back around pages 115 and 116. And so note that when Gennaro and Grant, at the end of this chapter, are exiting the maintenance shed, they can observe the Velociraptors leaving the lodge, when they get woo and heading towards the visitor center. Is that in the same line? So visitor center, maintenance shed, animal enclosure, raptor pen. Yeah, so the lodge wasn't on that first list of, of buildings, but um, the lodge must be somewhere near enough that it, it is visible from the maintenance shed. So if you're drawing a map, like just make sure that it's visible, even through all of that list. And that ends our discussion of this part of this chapter for today. Thanks to my special guests, Lindsay and Phil Longbray. Thank you so much, guys, for coming back. Good to see you. And when I sign off today, thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some, things, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park. You can do that by connecting with me at ryansrogers at gmail.com. And if you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book. Or also not the book, all you'd like. 
Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the infantry, and worse than all, the King Street capers. You can find links to all that package in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me, I'm on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. And also not that too. Until next time.